God, it is our desire to live out the chorus of that song, that we would give every part of ourselves to you, that we would hold back on nothing. Lord God, that all that we are, that all that we desire, to all that we long for, would be wrapped up in you. Father, as we come before your word today, we pray that you will so work in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, Lord God, that our desire would deepen to give ourselves to you. And our ability, empowered by your spirit, would even increase that our lives would be for you and for you alone, living for an audience of one. Father, bless this time as we come before your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to do things a little bit differently today. I'm not going to ask you to stand as I read the word today. But we'll be coming from Psalm 103 uh, today. And... Before we read it, I wanted to just make a few preliminary comments and some thoughts. My title for the sermon today is A Talk With My Soul. A Talk With My Soul. Uh, when is the last time that you had a talk with your soul? Now, if you'll be honest, it was probably just a few minutes ago. If you're like me, you've had... 15 talks with your soul already this morning. Uh, but the reality is that the ongoing conversation you have with yourself is the most important conversation, the most life-changing conversation, the, the, the one conversation above all others that determines the trajectory of your life. What are you saying to your soul? It's the most important one you have. It's not from out there, it's the one in here. So, so it's, not, it's, it's not the conversation from the government, it's not your boss, it's not your parents, it's not your teachers, it's not from music, it's not from the arts. Listen, it's not even from the devil or from the Bible. The most important conversation you have is the one that you choose to dwell on in your own head. And it's what you are saying to yourself in uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Paul says these words, bringing every thought captive to the mind of Christ. That's not just an extraneous goal for a group of super Christians, but it is the ongoing battle for anyone who desires to honor Jesus with their life. What are you saying in your head? How are you instructing yourself? And so with, with that in mind, David is having a conversation with his own soul in these verses. So let me read for you from Psalm 103. David writes, My soul, bless the Lord, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. My soul, bless the Lord, and do not forget all His benefits. He forgives all your iniquities. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. He satisfies you with good things. 
Your youth is renewed like the eagle. Then down to the end in verse 22, he says, Bless the Lord, all his works, and all the places where he rules. My soul, bless the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first picked this up and read it in this translation, the CSB, I was like, ah, I don't know if I like that translation as much. I'm so used to, bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. I'm so used to that, that when I first read it, I'm like, what you trying to do? You, you messed it up for me. My soul, bless the Lord. But, but to be honest with you, as I began to read it more and I began to study it and I looked at it as well in the original language in Hebrew, something began to come out uh, in me that I hadn't really fully seen before. David is having a conversation here. He's not having a conversation with another person. He's not having a conversation with a group of people. He's not even having a conversation with God at this point. David is having a conversation with his own soul. And, and, and the force of these words in, 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 in the original Hebrew is this is in an imperative. When he says, bless the Lord, that is an imperative, which is the language of command. So it, it's not just throwing God a bone. Oh, bless the Lord. He is commanding his own soul to do something. He is saying, soul, my soul, bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord. And forget not all his benefits. He is speaking to his own soul the command to bless God. That's what he's doing here. It is commanding his own soul. So David's having this conversation and he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. The Hebrew word there for soul is nefesh. It deals with the innermost part of who we are. Nefesh, soul, is the seat of our emotions, our desires, our appetites, and our affections. So David is, in effect, saying, emotions, bless the Lord. He's saying, desires, bless the Lord. Appetites, bless the Lord. Affections, bless the Lord. Every part of who I am, bless the Lord. And that word bless is a word that can also be translated and is in some other places, kneel. So, so when he says, my soul bless the Lord, he's saying, take a posture of worship before God. My soul bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. He is saying to himself, you take the right posture before God, and that posture is one of worship. It is one of humility. It is one of gratitude. It is not one of pride, of arrogance. But he says to his own soul, get on your knees, soul. Worship God in the beauty of his holiness. Get in the right place. You see, blessing the Lord on our knees is the posture of the Christian life. That's the posture of the Christian life. It is a life of humility and gratitude lived before a, a watching and waiting God. He's, he's waiting on us. He's watching us. He's loving us. And he's, he, he invites us into his presence to be in his presence. Humility is the breeding ground for any true work of the Holy Spirit. 
If God is at work in your life, and if you are inviting him, you invite him by taking that posture before God. So verse 2 becomes the key that unlocks the rest of this psalm, and we only have time to go through a few verses, but in verse 2, he says, My soul bless the Lord, and do not forget all his benefits. My soul bless the Lord and do not forget all his benefits. What he's saying here is soul, you better remember what he done did for you. (laughs) You better remember soul. He's commanding his soul. He's saying soul, you better look to him and you better remember what he did for you. He's done everything for you. Soul, don't forget. Soul, remember One commentator said that it is in the very nature of us as human beings to forget those who have blessed us the most. And even more so when it comes to God. We easily forget the blessings of our God. That's why God designed in his word, in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the people of God, God so worked their their calendar that it was going to be hard for them to forget him. There was a series of feasts and holy days and holy weeks that were laid out in the Old Testament. There was the Feast of the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles. All of these things crowded the calendar so you couldn't get too far away from a time where you had to come into God's presence. On top of all that, because God knew if they don't remember me, they're in trouble. On top of all that, all those feasts, every week, he had a Sabbath set apart where people would cease from all labor. They wouldn't work, and they would take a 24-hour period of resting from their labor, remembering God and recharging themselves in his presence. There was no other society in the world that knew of that kind of rest. But God said, if you don't remember me, you're in trouble. you got to remember me. Forget not all his benefits. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, in verse 3, blessed be the, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says, man, I got to remember my God. Remembering the Lord and all he has done is your first and greatest task every day of your earthly life. Every day of your earthly life, the first and most important thing that you will do is to remember your God and what he's done. Listen, in these verses, we're going to go through five benefits that he lists out here for us to remember. He is your forgiver. He is your healer. He is your redeemer. He is the crowner of your head. He is your satisfier. We're going to see all of these benefits that derive from God, but each one of these is a word in the the Hebrew that is a participle, and it's called a participle, which is a noun verb. So being a noun, it means it speaks of a person, the Lord. But being a verb, it means it speaks of an action, something that is done. So when he uses this language, he puts it together in such a way that God 
is the one who covers your iniquity. God is the forgiver of your iniquity. God is your healer. God is your redeemer. It's not just something that God does. It's intrinsic to the nature of who he is. That's who God is. So, so some of you in this room, I can see a bunch of you. Just, just to illustrate this, some of you are creative people. You're creative in a whole bunch of different ways. We have musicians. We have singers. We have poets. I heard a bunch of y'all last week. Some of y'all didn't know we're poets. And then, oh my gosh, she's a poet too. Found out you were poets. Your, your, your artistry in different ways. Uh, whatever it may be, some of you are dancers. So you, you are creative in different ways. Look, uh, most of you know that you know, I preach occasionally here and I do counseling work and I do other stuff at Epiphany, but most of you know that intrinsic to who I am, I am first and foremost a dancer. Most of you know that already. I mean, just by the way I move, I flow like that, right? So y'all know that. So when you see me move and do my thing and I do the chicken wing, and when you see me just, you know, you see the way I move. Look, I don't want anyone to feel bad because they can't move quite like I can move, right? Don't feel bad. Don't feel guilty. It's a gift, y'all. I, I don't know how to, how to express it. It's my gift. But uh, w when you're a creative person, you are a person that you just don't do art or you just don't sing or you just don't dance. It's something inside of you, right, that, that urges you on. It's like this is who I am. I've got to do this. I need an outlet, and that's part of your worship to the Lord if you're using it in the right way, right? I am a person who's been created like this, and this is one way that I express who I am. God is that. He is the one who forgives. He is your healer. He is your redeemer. One last thing before we go into these uh, five benefits, and that is if you'll notice in these verses... David is not making self-affirmations. He's not just saying, I am this, I am that. He is making God affirmations. Now listen, there can be a place for self-affirmation, but any self-affirmation disconnected from the person of God is in the wrong place. So any self-affirmation we have starts with the fact that we are created in, in his image and likeness, imago Dei. It's understanding who we are created in him. And if we'll go any further than that, it is because of the relationship, not that I sought with him, but that he sought with me and the pit that he grabbed me out of and brought me to himself. So David here is not making self-affirmations, he's making God-affirmations. Look, if you wanted to call it gaffirmations, I won't be mad at you. God-affirmations, gaffirmations. So this is what he's doing. He's saying, God is this. So let's look for a minute at each of these benefits in verses 3 through 5. Benefit number one, God is your forgiver. He forgives all your iniquity. I don't think it's by mistake that he lists this benefit first. Any other benefit that God would give you, God gives me long life, wonderful. God uh, 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 heals me, that's great. 
God is watching over me. God has crowned me with all of these other blessings. If it is devoid of this first benefit, ultimately it doesn't lead you anywhere to be able to sustain being in the presence of God. So he recognizes and realizes that the first and greatest benefit is that God has to deal with my sin problem. He's got to deal with my sin problem. He uses this word uh, when he says iniquity here. The Hebrew is evan. And that word means not only iniquity, but also the guilt of your iniquity and the punishment of your iniquity. So when he says he forgives all of your iniquity, not only does he blot out your sin, but he also takes away the guilt and the shame of it. It's gone. He says, I took it away. Not only that, he takes away the punishment of it because he took that punishment on himself. That's what the Lord has done for us. In Isaiah chapter 43, the prophet says it this way. Uh, the Lord speaking through him. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and will not remember your sins. God makes a declaration to himself and that he wants you to be in on his self-conversation. He says, I'm going to blot out all your sins. They're gone. And I will not remember your sins anymore. Look, you got some people in your life that remember your sins. You may have some people in your life group that remember your sins. I don't know. You remember your own sins. But God says, I'm not going to remember them anymore. I have made a decision. Because I put them on Jesus Christ. And when you gave your life to Christ, now your sins are departed from you as far as the east is from the west. I will remember them no more. This is the first and greatest benefit that we see. Listen, if you're walking around today constantly riddled with guilt and shame over sins that God has long since forgiven, then you have a faulty understanding of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants to separate you from that guilt, from that punishment, from that sin. Secondly, he says, not only is God your forgiver, but God is your healer. Verse, the second part of verse 3, he heals all your diseases. This is interesting because it, as I look at this, I kind of look at, look at it like an operation is taking place. He's about to heal you of your disease. There's an operation going on. But before the operation can happen successfully, something had to happen. There had to be the sterilization of the tools that would be used. There had to be the cleansing of, of that part of your body where they're going to do the work. And that is the washing away of your sin and your iniquity so 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 that is the pre-op that is the pre-surgical procedure to get you ready for God's surgical work he heals all your diseases he's your healer look at this in all of these verses with all of these benefits he just doesn't say he heals all diseases he forgives all iniquity but he says he heals all your diseases he heals all all, he, he forgives all your iniquity. It's personal. God personally wants you to apply this to your own life. 
Listen, it's easy to believe God can forgive your neighbor. It's easy to believe God can heal someone else. But he wants you to know that I come to you as your, as the one who forgives you, as the one who heals you. And he says, I heal, I'm going to heal all your diseases. Now, now, that word has two uses in Scripture. One is literal, talking about physical maladies of the body. The other is metaphorical, speaking of adversities, setbacks, and difficulties. And God says, I am the Lord who heals all, all your diseases. Everything, every setback, every difficulty, every adversity, God says, I'm enough. I can do it. I will do it. That's the promise of God. That's the benefit of relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, I am your healer. He uses the word there, Rapha. Some of you have heard the term Jehovah Rapha, one of the names of God that we talk about. It comes from Exodus chapter 15, verse 26. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord who heals. That's the word he uses here. He says, I am the healer. That word comes from an Aramaic word, which means to darn, to mend, or to repair something. There's uh, an Ethiopic word uh, that means to stitch something back together. What is God saying? He says, I am the one who takes your parts that are disconnected, and I am the one who will put you back together again. God says, you're here and you're there and your emotions are over there. I want to bring you back together under my sovereign goodness to have you experience what you can only experience in wholeness in me. God is the one who puts you back together again. Listen, you can be as humpty dumpty as you want to be. And, and you say, all the king's horses and all the king's men can never put me back together again. But God says, I don't need the king's horses, and I don't need the king's men, because I am the king, and I am the king of kings, and I will put you back together again. God is able to do exactly that, but someone is sitting here today and saying, yeah, I get it, I believe that kind of, sort of, but you don't know, pastor, you don't know my situation. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what happened to me. Or maybe you don't know the, the dirt that I've done. You just don't know how bad it is. And if you had that conversation with me right now, I'd have to say, you know what, you're right. I don't know. And, and, and we could sit down for two hours and you could download your life to me. And after that time, I might get it a little bit more, but I'm not in your shoes. I haven't walked with you, so as much as I might do my best to empathize with you and to get it, there's still part of it, you're right. You don't get it, Pastor, you're right, I don't get it. But the good news of the scripture is that there is one who gets it. He gets it, he gets it completely. He understands your predicament better than you understand your own. He knows the, the deepest part of your brokenness better than you know it yourself. And he's got the super glue to fix it together. He is the mender of every broken part. David was a man who uh, we think of as either the shepherd boy playing his songs and shepherding the sheep, or we think of him generally as King David, right? The great king. 
But there was a long period in David's life after he was anointed as king. 15 years between the time he was anointed until he became the king. Most of that time was not about his great victories, but most of that time he was hiding like a criminal from the king Saul. He hid in caves. He went to the Philistines. He acted like he was insane. He went through all of these things as he hid from the king who he honored, but who wanted him dead. And so that was David's life. During that period of time where he was running from Saul, we know of at least 10 psalms that he wrote in praise and in glory to God as he's running from Saul. David was a man who was crushed in every way, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually at times. But in these verses here, he is shouting to his soul, I remember, Lord, you're my healer. In his brokenness, he remembers the Lord as healer. Look, here's the challenge for us in this room today. Can you leave the how and the when of your healing in the faithful hands of God and let your soul rejoice in Jehovah Rapha even right now. Can you leave the how and the when? I don't know when, Lord. I don't know how, Lord. You may never know how and when. But if you believe what God declares, I will heal all of your diseases. Lord, I leave the how and the when into your hands, but I accept the truth of who you are to me. The third benefit is in verse 4. He redeems your life from the pit. God is your redeemer. Redemption is one of the great themes in all of the Bible. The word means to buy back. To buy back. And, and, and it implies that where you are is a place that is not good. And he buys you back and puts you back into right standing and blessing. So when the people of Israel come out of bondage in Egypt, the Bible says at times that he redeemed his people from Egypt. He bought them back. He brought them through the Red Sea and he got them out of bondage. Redemption is one of the constant themes that you see uh, as you read the Bible. Ultimately, Jesus is our great redeemer. Uh, now, now, the word redemption or redeem, there is a, a, a provision that we see in the law of God in Leviticus 25 called the kinsman redeemer. The goel is the word. It's the same word that's used here. The kinsman redeemer. You see, when God promised Abram what he was going to do with him, he was going to make him a great nation. He promised him two things. He promised him land, the promised land. That's where we get that, that word from, that phrase, the promised land. He promised him a land, and he promised him seed. Not seed to, 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 uh, to, to grow corn, but seed offspring from his body. And he says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. More than the stars of the sky will be your descendants. He promises him land and seed. And yet we see this throughout the Old Testament. The same thing we see here. People run into difficult times in their lives. And what happened back in that day in their agrarian society was when they 
ran into particularly troublesome times, they had to sell their land off. This happened not only in Israel, but it happened in all agrarian societies in the ancient Near East. It happens today in other societies that are still agrarian. You've got to sell off your land in order to, to survive. But God made provision that even if you've done that through the kinsman redeemer, a close relative could come and buy that back. And the person who bought it from you could not refuse them. There was a kinsman redeemer who could come and buy it back. What also happened was that people in desperate times would sell themselves out into indentured servanthood or slavery to someone else to say, I'm just going to work for you. And, and, and so they would sell the, their, their, their selves for a certain price. But God made provision for that through the kinsman redeemer, the close relative who would come to you and say, I am buying him, I am buying her out of their servitude. God says, he redeems you. He is your redeemer. He's your redeemer. So, so he says in Isaiah chapter 43, these words, to Israel, which is in captivity in Babylon, even before they go in captivity, he says these words, but now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. He says this to a people who he's about to redeem, but they haven't even gone into their bondage yet. But his promise is before you even go in and you're going in because of your unfaithfulness, I want you to know that I've already redeemed you back. Jesus died on a cross 2,000 years ago and was raised on the third day. But the Bible says that before the foundation of the world, a lamb was slain. God had said, God, it was done before it even started. God had planned his redeeming work. He redeems, he says, your life from the pit. The pit could refer uh, literally to a pit that Israelites would dig in order to catch uh, a, a lion that may have been raiding the community. They had lions in Palestine back in the day. And so they would dig a pit to order, in order to catch the lion. But metaphorically, it could also speak about what uh, we see in the Hebrew scriptures is this place called Sheol. Sheol was the place of the dead. Sheol was the place of gloom and decay. Sheol was seen as the place where there uh, is no escape. Sheol, to the Hebrew, was the sunken place on steroids. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Sheol was the place beyond any place where you were hopeless and lost. But God says, I redeem your life from the pit. There's no place I won't go after you. There's no place I won't go after you. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, Paul says it this way. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he had descended into the lower regions of the earth. God is saying that in Sheol, in that place of darkness and gloom, in that place where you think that there is no way to get out, I'm coming for you. There's no place 
that you are or you ever will be if you place your trust in Jesus Christ that he cannot and will not redeem you from. There is a redeemer, a song says, Jesus, God's own son, precious lamb of God, Messiah, holy one. He's the redeemer and he redeems you from the pit. Lastly, God is your crowner. Fourthly, not lastly, God crowns you with faithful love and compassion. God puts this crown on your head. Now, when we talk about a crown, the first thing you think of is royalty, right? And God says that not only am I going to deal with your sin, not only am I going to heal you and get you back in, in the right place, not only will I redeem you so that now no one has uh, 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 their clutches on you, but now that I've got you there, now I'm going to bless you like you could never even imagine. I'm going to crown you, not just with a crown with, with, with rubies or with gold or precious stones, but I'm going to crown you with faithful love and compassion. With chesed is the Hebrew word for faithful love. It's covenantal love. It's the love of God that says, even though you keep messing up the covenant, even though you keep sinning against the covenant, my chesed, my faithful love, I'm going to keep covenant in your place. You can't keep it yourself. You haven't kept it yourself. But he says, I keep it for you. I'm going to cover you. I'm going to crown you with my faithful love and compassion. In Exodus chapter 34, when the Lord reveals himself to Moses, Moses said, I want to see you. God says, you can't see the front of me, but I'll pass by you. I'll take on a form and, and I'll let you see a little bit. I'll give you a little something, something, God says. And in Exodus chapter 34, as he passes by Moses, God calls out the, these words. He says, the Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. So when God crowns you with faithful love and compassion, what is he doing? He's crowning you with himself. He's saying, the crown that I put on you is me. I am at work. I am alive. I am on you. I am in you. This is my crown. Jesus said in John chapter 14 to his disciples, he says that right now the Spirit is with you. And what he means is in my presence, because I'm full of the Spirit, the, the Spirit is with you. But he says there's coming a day when the Spirit will live in you. That is the day of Pentecost where he blesses the church with the Holy Spirit and every born-again child of God is a recipient of the Holy Spirit through the finished work of Christ. Part of the finished work of Christ is the bestowing of, of the Holy Spirit on his church. That's part of his finished work. But listen, what practical difference does that crown make in your life? I'm glad you asked that question. First of all, it means that he's crowned you with faithful love, it means that you're secure. His love is faithful. It's never ending. It will never fail. He says, my faithful love is always there for you. Secondly, it means that God is at work in you. 
God says, uh, by his faithful love and compassion, I'm giving you my character. I'm giving you my person. I'm giving you my power at work within you. And that's never going to change. It means that God is at work in you. And thirdly, it means that you are God's chosen representative. You are God's representative. Listen, listen closely to me right now. There are some men and some women in this room that you would never say this out loud. Maybe you would, but probably you won't. But you secretly think in your life that somehow God is ashamed of you. That, that, that like, maybe I'm a saint, maybe I, I will go to heaven, but, but God doesn't really want me to be seen much in this world. You, you see yourself as an incognito child of God that he is secretly ashamed of. Well, God says, I put a crown on you so that you will be seen. I want people to know that's my boy, that's my girl, that's the one, I'm proud of them. Look at what I'm doing in their life. God is not ashamed of you. God is not ashamed of his people. With all our brokenness, even with all our sin, God is not ashamed of you. He loves you and he cares for you. Look, if, 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 if I was to tell you that I was walking out on Diamond Street and someone, someone says, man, I saw this guy. You won't believe what I'm about to say. I said, okay, what, tell me about it. Well, what he was wearing, it blew me away. What was he wearing? He was wearing a T-shirt. Okay, I've seen that before. Yeah, but, but it had like letters and words on it. Okay, do you believe this? He was wearing a t-shirt with letters and words. I'm like, okay. But he was wearing these jeans. Oh, wow, tell me about the jeans. They were blue. <laughs> they were blue jeans. Have you ever seen anything like that before? I'm like, what is wrong with you? But if someone told me, I saw on Diamond Street this person walking with this incredible crown. Now you got my attention. When, when you have a crown, it's, it's in order that you will be noticed. God has put his crown on his people in order that we would be known, that we would be set apart, that we would be those as God's chosen representatives, his holy people, his chosen people, set apart to declare his glory in the world. You're part of God's chosen people. Last of all, benefit number five, God is your satisfier. Verse 5, he satisfies you with good things. Your youth is renewed like the eagle. Let's be honest here. We look for satisfaction sometimes in all the wrong places. Look, if you're looking for satisfaction that lasts, if you're looking for that in success, you'll only be satisfied until you see someone that's more successful than you. If you're looking to it in food, and I know what that's like. I would like to say that that will only satisfy until your next hun hunger pangs. But you know and I know that's not true. When I have been satisfied with food and then I see something else that looks even better than what I just saw. Like, why did it have to be cherry cheesecake with chocolate all over it and whipped cream on the top? You will put that in your mouth even though you have no space left in your body for it. Food only satisfies for a minute. You want something more. Even sex. Sex outside of God's design for it 
will never satisfy us. It will promise satisfaction for sure. Man, if I could just get this or that. It promises satisfaction, but sex outside of God's design only leads to brokenness emotionally, spiritually, even physically. Thank God that He is our healer. He heals all of our diseases. Amen. Listen, substitute satisfiers can never produce what they promise. Substitute satisfiers can never produce what they promise. The word here for satisfy is a word that means to be sated. That means to satisfy an appetite or desire fully, to fill to excess, to satiate or to glut. Amen. God says, I am your satisfier in such a way that I will satisfy you to the full. You will be satiated with satisfaction that comes from me and only from me. I will glut you with my goodness. I will overflow you with my love and my power and my care. He, 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 he uses the terminology in the second part of the verse of your youth being renew, renewed like the eagle. The eagle is a bird that's spoken of often in Scripture as one of majesty and power and swiftness and vigor. All of these are images that we get from looking at the eagle. But as he says, your youth will be renewed. There's this idea with eagles that they're, over the course of their lifetime, many times they go through a process which is called molting of their feathers and molting is simply this that after a while the feathers get worn out through the rain through the mud through whatever it is they're no longer very useful to the eagle and so what happens in the life of an eagle is that the old feathers fall off and new ones grow in their place and they are now enabled to fly and to soar as they once could because of this renewing process that God has designed for them Listen, the same thing is true for you and I. There's some saints here that are over 40. There's some saints here who are over 50. I'm not going to go no further, but there's some saints here that have lived a little while. You can say amen to this if you can, but, but here's the reality. Though your body is getting a little older and you're losing some of the capabilities of your youth, though you can't run and jump like you used to could, Though, though, though uh, now you don't just forget your keys, but you forget where you left the car. <laughs> now, when, when your left knee pain gives a better forecast than AccuWeather, because you know what's about to happen, you see you're getting a little older, when all of these things are true, you still know the sweet communion of God who satisfies in a way that nothing and no one else can. You know that there is a lasting satisfaction in God. Forget not all His benefits. Remember what the Lord has done for me. He is the satisfier. He is the one who satiates your soul. David in these verses is preaching to himself, my soul, bless the Lord. Don't forget all his blessings and benefits. 
Listen, brothers and sisters, if we're going to walk with the Lord, if we're going to grow in Christ, it will be because we remember his benefits and blessings. We don't let that go far from us, but we come right back to what God has done for me. Remember that in your life. Let me conclude with this. Isaac Watts wrote this hymn in the 1700s, 18th century. And the words are, are just this. He says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice them through his blood. He says, see from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? And then he says in the last stanza of the hymn, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Brothers and sisters, speak to your soul. Have a conversation with your soul that says, forget not all his benefits. Remember what the Lord has done for you. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful and grateful today because, Lord, we cannot exhaust and we can't even begin to exhaust your benefits we looked at a few verses of a longer psalm that has many more benefits embedded in it. Lord, we don't have the time, but Lord, we pray that you will so quicken us as your people that we will know all of your benefits and blessings and that we will recall them to mind. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. It's because of your mercy that I'm not consumed. Great is your faithfulness, Lord. Lord, help us to remember you early and often, daily, every week, all the time, Lord God. Let your benefits be on our mind. We thank you for all these things in the mighty and matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen.